Well, good morning, fellowship. I wanna go ahead and welcome you in. If you'll stand and worship this morning with us. We get to sing to a king who's created us, who's made us and formed us. So this morning, I wanna invite you to join in and sing with us. We're creation suddenly articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry. Then from north to south and east to west, we hear Christ be magnified. of October, 
We're calling the people of fellowship to commit to daily focused prayer for our nation. I don't have to tell you how deeply our wounded country needs prayer right now. It seems we've never been more divided and an election looms on the horizon. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that God is in control. To help you in this commitment, our senior leadership team has written prayers to help guide you through daily intercession for our country. These prayers are in no way exhaustive, but only a prompting to help guide you in ways to pray. To subscribe, visit the link shown on the screen. If you're already signed up for our Advent and Easter devotionals, you will automatically receive the daily prayers via email and no further action is necessary. Please spend time interceding for our nation and leaders each day as you lift your praises and prayers to God. Then allow Him to use you as an instrument of His peace. We must do all we can to allow the love of Jesus to flow through us into the hearts and lives of others. He is the only one who can bring healing and hope to our nation during these difficult days. Let it be known that the people of Fellowship Bible Church of Northwest Arkansas believe in the power of prayer and the sovereignty of our God. We do believe in both of those, the power of prayer and the sovereignty of our God. And so Fellowship, let's not be people who take that lightheartedly, but let's actively go before our Lord and ask for help in these coming weeks. Good morning, my name's Caleb Freeman. I'm a pastor here at the Rogers campus with the FSM team. Hey, if you're new, we would love to connect with you. The easiest way to do that is for you to scan this QR code that's coming up. I'll point to it with my uh, club for a hand. Can you believe they're making me carry boxes for announcements this morning when I still got a club? But if you're new, go ahead and scan this QR code. We would love to connect with you. It's gonna shoot you over to a page that'll show you some of the ways that we can serve you or maybe you can serve others in this season. If you're not new, we would still love to get with you. And so check out this website. It'll show you everything that's going on around fellowship. Hey, for those of you online, we're excited that you're worshiping. This QR code works through your TV too. And so if you're new, we would love to have a staff member work with you and connect with you. Check it out. For our FSM families, here's a quick reminder. We have a socially distant picnic this afternoon after the 11 o'clock service. So bring a lawn chair, bring some food, bring a smile. We can't wait to see you guys. I do wanna give some encouragement to those of you with young children to jump in on something that the early childhood team has put together. It's an activity box that helps you engage with your kids around the Lord and around scripture. You see, this is the, uh, this is the Freeman family trust box and you can see that the artistic gene runs deep in the Freeman blood. But when we picked this up, inside there were coloring pages, there were memory verses, activities, crafts, all centering around how we can trust the Lord. My daughter's four years old, and the other day she was able to quote to us Proverbs 3, 5, because she learned it in this box. There's another one coming out, and it's a thankful box. You can guess what the content will cover. But I would really encourage you guys to get on our website and register for one of these. It's no cost to you all, and you can pick it up the week of October 18th. But man, what a tool to walk with your kids today as you engage scripture with them. Moms and dads, let me remind you something that I often remind myself, and that it's we have the privilege and the responsibility to guide our children's spiritual development. And these activity boxes are a great tool to help you do that. So get online, sign up for the thankful box. Signups do close tomorrow. So if you want one, you need to make sure that you do it quick. Hey, would you all pray with me as we get ready to worship? Father, thanks so much just for who you are and the chance to be here this morning. Lord, we worship you. And we ask that this morning you would be honored with our thoughts, our actions, our lives, and in our communities. We love you and it's in your son's name that we pray, amen. Amen. Church, would you stand this morning again as we sing? Maybe you find yourself in need of hope this morning, need of healing. And would you just hear these words as we sing about our God, who's the giver of life, the giver of love and hope. Don't miss these words. 
together one day shouting the praise of our God. Would you just reflect on that for a moment? Picture it. This is just a taste of that. All the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. yourself to hear the word of God. Whatever that looks like for you, if you need to sit down, if you need to open your hands, just posture yourself. Hear these words from Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I'll praise your name forever and ever. 
Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell me of the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyful singing of your righteousness. Would you hear this? The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. Tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and he saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Oh, mm-hmm. 
Jesus, I just pray that you would help us to hear what you have to say to us through your word this morning. Thank you for who you are, Lord, that you are the same, God, that we can trust you in the midst of any circumstance, God. You are with us. Lord, we love you very much. We just pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. I was 19 years old, just finished up my freshman year at the U of A, and uh, some mentors in my life challenged me to go on an international mission trip to get exposed to what God was doing in the world. And so I had the opportunity that summer uh, to go with a team to Southeast Asia, where we had several workers working in really difficult, unreached places, and what was happening was the mission organization that they were part of were bringing all their workers together um, to a certain city where we were going to put on a mission conference for them. The idea was they brought a team from fellowship, and we were going to try to create there what we have here every Sunday, because these people are scattered in villages, isolated from other believers, doing work to see people come to know Christ. So let's let them get the experience to worship together. And my responsibility was, I was 19, so I was working with the children. I was working with uh, like first, second, and third graders. So any uh, K2 town people in here? Any of my kindergarten, first and second graders? Yeah, so, hey guys, we were doing what y'all do in K2, we were doing for workers over there. And so I was leading worship, singing songs with them, and, and teaching lessons with them. And, and one day, our lesson was on the idea of persecution. And so I'm sitting there, uh, sitting around like a little small group with six, seven, and eight-year-olds, and I asked the question, do you know what the word persecution means? And this cute little seventh, seven-year-old girl, uh, she's from New Zealand, so she had this awesome Kiwi accent that I will not uh, try to imitate lest I offend the Kiwis among us, and there are Kiwis among us. Uh, she looked up at me with her, her New, Zealand, New Zealand accent. She says, well, earlier this year, uh, a friend of ours let us know that the villagers were rioting because we were there, and they were coming to burn our house down and hurt us. So he, he hit us in a boat and snuck us off the island before they got us. Is that persecution? Here I was, the 19-year-old college kid, ready to teach this girl about persecution because I had read about it in a book. And I realized in that moment, I was sitting before my heroes. These six, seven, and eight-year-olds knew a part of the Christian experience that I knew nothing about. I have a friend who, who went to go start a church in a, in a difficult city where there's very few churches and he went to a coffee shop and met some people and, and they asked him what he was doing there. He said, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor here to, here to tell people about Jesus and start a church. And they said, get the blank out of our city. No one invited you here. You know what happens when I go into a restaurant and tell people I'm a pastor in Northwest Arkansas? They say, thanks for what you do. Can I buy your meal? And here I am to teach us about persecution. So I just want to acknowledge with some fear and trepidation, I'm approaching a topic that I haven't lived, but I'm going to hope to go to God's word and see what he has to say and see what we as American Christians living in Northwest Arkansas can learn from, from God's word about the church that suffers. Before I do, I did experience some persecution of my own a couple of weeks ago at the hands of Hunter House. Y'all know Hunter. Yeah, you know, the FSM guy that taught a couple weeks ago? He thought it would be cute to embarrass me by digging into the archives of Facebook and find ridiculous pictures of me as a freshman in college and, and put them on the screen just for a little fun. And, and I had people ask me, Nick, what are you going to do to get back at Hunter? Here's the deal. I have immense respect for Hunter. He's a man of character and integrity who loves the Lord and leads our church well. And so and I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say the cycle stops with me. I could fill the screen with embarrassing pictures of him, of him looking like a fool, but I'm not gonna do that, okay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna step up above that, and uh, it's gonna stop here. Does that make sense? We're just gonna leave that there, okay? So, hey, let me pray, and then we'll jump into 1 Thessalonians. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your goodness and your grace, and uh, Lord, I pray uh, that this morning as we, we go to the scriptures, uh, Lord, that you will open our eyes to see what's true, that you will challenge our hearts to grow to be more like you. We love you. We praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've been told that for people watching online that I'm supposed to stay between this square and this square, and that's going to be, that might be the greatest suffering I experienced this morning. 
um, is trying to keep skills. So if y'all see me like walk way over here, can you just like point me back to the middle? That would be really, really helpful for everybody online. So we'll see how it goes. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse 13. Uh, to remember kind of what Paul's doing here, uh, Hunter did do a great job setting us up. In, in this story, what's happened is Paul is doing what he does where he goes throughout the Roman world, he goes to a city, and he tells people about Jesus. And when people come to faith, he spends time with them, teaching and training them so that they can walk with Jesus well. And he trains up some leaders who can take care of that church once he moves on. But in Thessalonica, the, some people in the city drove Paul out of town early before he had the chance to train the church up. They threw him out of town. And so Paul's time was cut short there, and he was really concerned about this new baby church that he hadn't had the time to train up. So he sends Timothy back to check on them, and Timothy comes back and says, Paul, they're actually doing great. They've been really faithful, and they're growing in the Lord. So this letter is Paul's praise of thanksgiving that he is so glad this church is being faithful, even though he had so little time to help them get established. So he's thanking God for their faithfulness, he's encouraging them to stay faithful, and he's trying to answer a few questions he didn't have time to talk about. So that's what's going on in 1 Thessalonians. And in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul's continuing his, his praise and thanksgiving for the good things he sees in that church. He says, we also thank God continually, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. The foundation for what's making the Thessalonians grow is how they treat the word of God. They recognize that when Paul talked to them, they weren't just hearing a wise teacher's opinion on life or opinion on spirituality. They recognized Paul's teaching as God's word, which is our foundation as well. When we read this book, this is not just a bunch of people's ideas about God. This book is God's word to us. And our growth, our faithfulness depends on how we recognize God's word in the scriptures and then how we respond to it. Look at the progression that happens in their response. Paul describes it as what they hear. It begins with the most passive thing. The word comes to them and then they receive it, they accept it, and then it gets to work in them. This is a, a growing uh, acceptance and, and, and diving in deeply as the word of God gets inside their heart. That when we truly receive and accept the word, it starts to change us. It gets to work on us. And, and Paul is saying, hey, I thank God because I see the word of God at work in you, changing you. That's what he's been saying the whole opening of this letter. But this morning in this passage, he's going to talk about a very specific way he sees the word at work. In verse 14, he says this. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they also heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Now, before we go on, I need to just make one little side note caveat about this passage. In this passage, as Paul criticizes the Jews who killed Jesus, killed the prophets, and persecute the church, this passage has been misused and abused to teach anti-Semitism in the past, to teach a prejudice against the Jewish people, to say that's what Paul's doing here. Um, guys, that is absolutely not what's happening here. Reason one, Paul was a Jew, He's not being anti-Jewish. In fact, his heart was for the Jews to know Jesus. He is not criticizing the Jewish people. He's criticizing a particular group of Jews who crucified Jesus and persecuted the church. Similarly, Dietrich Bonhoeffer during World War II loved Germany and really couldn't stand the Nazis. He criticized a group of leaders in Germany that were doing horrible things while still loving his country. Similarly, Paul is criticizing a group of Jewish leaders while still loving the Jewish people. So I just want to clarify that's what's going on here, and that would be a total abuse of this passage to use it that way. So now back to Paul's main point, which is this. He is thankful because when the Thessalonians, they received the word, they became imitators of the churches in Judea who suffered because the Thessalonians suffered the same kinds of things. 
You see, Paul's saying, it is especially remarkable to see the word at work at you. I know it is the work of God because you received the word even while suffering. The word is at work at you even while you are suffering difficult things. And he says, you became imitators. Now, this concept of, of imitation is an important one in the New Testament. The idea is, is that we need a model for how the Christian life is lived. Uh, you see, following Jesus is not just about accepting some things as true so you go to heaven when you die. Following Jesus, it, it does certainly include that, but following Jesus is about a new way to be human. It's about finding a new way to live your life. And you need examples. We need examples, which is why the church community matters so much. And Paul says, you imitated the example of that church in Judea, the people around Jerusalem. It was fun when we were reading this passage as a family. It was fun to, to talk with my daughter and say, hey, who are some women in your life that you think the way they live when they follow Jesus is worth copying? Kids, that would be a good conversation for you all to have on the drive home. Like, who do you see in your life that the way they follow Jesus is worth copying and imitating? So Paul says, you copied the churches in Judea in the way they suffered, which made me wonder as a student of the Bible, well, how did the churches in Judea suffer? What example does Paul have in mind here? So I went and did a quick survey of the book of Acts and read through the examples of sufferings. I wanted to know what they suffered, how they suffered, and why they suffered. What did the Christians suffer? in the book of Acts? Well, the first thing we saw was arrest. They were arrested by the authorities and put in prison for their faith. They were prohibited from preaching. They were told, you are not allowed to talk about Jesus. Stop telling people about Jesus. They were flogged, which means they were physically beaten for their faith, and they were even murdered for their faith in Jesus. So when Paul says, you suffered the same kinds of things that the church in Judea faced, we don't know if they suffered all of these, but these are the kinds of things that the Thessalonians are suffering. And then I wanted to know, how did they suffer? So these are the different things we see about the church in Judea. First of all, they suffered with integrity. When they are brought before the courts, there was nothing they could be accused of except for their faith in Jesus. There was no other crime. Uh, Peter says, when you suffer for doing evil, that's not anything to be proud of. I had a friend who, he was very outspoken about his faith. He loved to tell people about Jesus, but he was also just kind of a jerk. He was really, really rude and mean to people all the time, and he offended almost everyone he talked to. And he told me one time, I am being persecuted because of my faith. I didn't have the guts at the time to tell him, you are not suffering because of your faith. You're surrounded by Christians. You're not suffering because of your faith. You're suffering because you're a mean person. Side note, when we go on social media or in the workplace or in the marketplace and we talk about Jesus in a way that is mean, rude, and condescending to other people, it is not persecution when people swing back. That's being rude and getting the response, the response rudeness deserves. Okay? So the first thing that the early church did is they suffered with integrity. The only thing that they were guilty of was their faith not these other things that they could have rightly been accused of. They suffered with joy. They were, they were excited that they got to suffer with Jesus. They didn't take pleasure in pain. That would be sick. They took joy in the fact that they were counted worthy to be with Jesus and to represent him. They suffered with prayer for their persecutors. Stephen, his, his dying breath as he was dying was to pray for the people who were killing him for their forgiveness. They mourned. They grieved, they had joy, but they also had deep pain and sorrow over the ones that they lost. When they were in prison, they would sing hymns of praise to Jesus. They loved their persecutors. They didn't wanna see harm come to those who were hurting them. They did appeal to the law. Suffering and being willing to suffer doesn't mean you just roll over and don't say anything. When they were about to illegally beat Paul as a Roman citizen, he had no problem going, hey, pause. You know I'm a Roman citizen, right? And it's illegal to hit me without a trial. They had no problem appealing to correct justice under the law. And in everything, they were relentlessly faithful. Through all the suffering that happens in the book of Acts, every couple of chapters, you're gonna read a little summary statement that says something like, 
the word kept going forth and more people believed. This is the model of suffering that the early church gives us that Paul says, church in Thessalonica, you have become imitators of this. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for what's happening in you. Which leads me to the question, why? What would make someone be willing to suffer that way? To get the answer to that, we're gonna have to read on a little further. So let's take a look at verse 17. Verse 17, Paul says, but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time. This is talking about when Paul was driven out of Thessalonica early. And look at Paul's relational care for these people. In chapter two, he's described himself as a father to that church. He's described himself as a mother to that church. And now he describes himself as a child that's been orphaned from that church. What is he doing by stacking all of these family metaphors? He's showing how intensely he loves and cares. It seems like he's concerned that they might have thought that he abandoned them, that he came in like some street preacher, left his message and moved on. And he's wanting to communicate, no, I was driven out and I love you and care for you deeply. In fact, look at what he goes on. He says, we were separated in person, not in thought. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul did, again and again, but Satan blocked our way. So here, Paul introduces a different kind of opponent. The first one, it was those who would persecute the church from the outside. Now he recognizes there's actually a spiritual opponent to what Paul's doing, someone called Satan. Now, for some of us in the, in the West, talking about Satan and demons and spiritual beings feels like we're going the road of superstition and magic. Um, but when we look at the story the Bible presents, the Bible presents a world where behind what we can see, there is an unseen spiritual realm. That is our reality. And, and we need to understand that that unseen spiritual realm matters and is opposed to the work of the gospel. Now, I don't know how Paul knew that Satan was behind whatever he was facing, and we don't know what that opposition looked like. Was it something breaking down on his way trying to get there? Was, it, was, he, was he saying Satan was behind the persecution? We don't really know, and we don't know how Paul knew that it was Satan. And I'm always a little hesitant when people see Satan behind every bad thing that happens in their life. Every flat tire is Satan trying to get them. And yet, I also recognize that there are spiritual forces that are opposed to the work of the gospel. So how do we respond to that? Well, here's what I notice in the New Testament. When Paul acknowledges that Satan opposes the church, he doesn't tell them to focus on Satan and doing battle with Satan. His answer is always, to keep doing the same thing you've been doing. Focus on Jesus, pray, because when we seek the Lord, when we seek to obey him, when we seek his word, the power of the spirit at work in us is stronger than any other spiritual force out there. So our response when we reach opposition is still the same, keep following Jesus. If you want a wonderful picture of what this might look like, I heartily recommend you C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. Uh, it is a wonderful picture of what the work of Satan trying to get in someone's mind might look like because what Satan is after to do, what he is after doing is he wants to destroy the work of God. He wants to tempt believers to sin and accuse believers in shame to try to cripple us from what, what God has us to do. And so our answer to that is that God has already provided what we need in his word, by his spirit, and in the community of the church. And so we press on faithfully in every situation, even the hard ones. I got to share a story with you about a, uh, it was about a year ago of how we saw this happen with one of our global workers, of how a everyday difficult situation turned into an opportunity because of faithfulness. And, and now we get to hear it straight from his mouth, so why don't you take a look. I'm a global worker working in Northwest Africa currently, living in a city of a, close to three million people. Uh, this city is, it's got about 0.6% evangelical Christianity. It's dominated by Islam. Um, it's a difficult place to live, but thankfully God is at work. Um, I moved there a few years ago. I um, used to live in Bentonville, Arkansas, teaching and coaching, and just living a normal everyday life when God started to rock my world with stories that I've read through the book of Acts, stories that I've read of the miraculous that God's doing um, through everyday people. 
And so we moved there and currently we have about 13 groups that are Muslim groups that are studying the Word every single day. They're studying, they're obeying, they're sharing the Word and we're seeing lives begin to change in miraculous ways um, through the Word of God. And it's just an incredible joy to be a part of what God is doing on a daily basis there. And I want to share one quick story with you guys um, about a, a normal day-to-day -day living situation that turned to the miraculous very quickly. Um, my car was hit from behind, had some problems, but it still worked. Well, eventually it died on the way home. It's a Friday night. It's late. My family's in the car with me. So I get some friends to help push the car on the side of the road, get a taxi, send my family home. So I sit down on the side of the road and shortly a young man comes out of the building. He's dressed in a security uniform and I find out he's actually a security guard for this store, which is a pretty common job in this country. We strike up a great conversation. This young man's name is Muhammad and conversation is wonderful. He's friendly. Well, my help finally arrives. They get my vehicle started and I'm about to leave. And it's one of those moments when the spirit grabs my heart and says, you cannot leave yet. It's in the day-to-day -day things where I'm going to do the miraculous. And I go back to visit with Muhammad and I tell him, Muhammad, I believe that God allows everything to happen for a reason. And Muhammad had a huge smile on his face. He agreed. You see, Muhammad's very passionate about his faith, about Islam. I then tell him that I believe my car broke down in front of his store that night for a reason. Again, he's happy. He's shaking my hand. And then I tell him next, that I believe that reason is that God wants him to know that Jesus loves him so much and Jesus is the only way to eternity. And Muhammad's jaw almost hits the ground. He was in shock and he knew not what to say at all. I then hand him my phone number and say, Muhammad, I'm gonna pray that this week Jesus comes to you in a dream and when he does, I want you to call me. This wasn't the normal strategy that I take. Normally it's getting people to start studying the word of God, but when the Spirit speaks, our job is clearly to obey. Finally, Muhammad agrees. He's confused. He's a little shocked still. I get in my car and I drive off. The next Wednesday night, five nights later, I get a call. It says, this is Muhammad. He said, I want you to know that I think I had a dream from Jesus last night. Can I tell you? I show up the next night at Muhammad's work again. And he says, I went to sleep and it was pitch black couldn't tell where I was and finally realized that I was walking through a forest completely by myself. Shortly after that, I could see two lights in front of me. And as the lights began to get closer and closer, I realized that it was your car that I was seeing. I said, after I realized it was your car, I then saw your face. And the moment I saw your face, I heard a loud voice from somewhere else say, everything this man is saying is true. Muhammad then looks at me and said, I woke up and knew what you were saying about Jesus was the truth. We get out the Word of God, we get out the sword of the Spirit, and we study John chapter 14 and Romans chapter 10 together. And I can gladly say now that Muhammad is now a brother in Christ. And even more so, Muhammad is now discipling other Muslim friends in the Word as well. It's not something complicated. He's reading the Word, he's asking questions, and he's allowing these guys to learn how to obey and share the Word as well. So what I've realized in this journey through all of these groups is that it's nothing special that I've done or can do because I really can't do anything special, but it's the Spirit of God working in us through His Word in everyday life situations where He does the miraculous just like He was doing in the book of Acts. Now there's a lot in that story that might seem hard to relate to. Uh, you might go, I, I, don't, I don't see Jesus coming to people in dreams that I'm talking to. I'm not serving in a context like that. But there's something really crucial I want you to see. He was having a bad day. His car broke down, he was stranded on the side of the road. In the place where they are, they don't measure temperature by the high, because the high is always in the hundreds. They measure it by whether it gets below 90 at night. He was having a bad day. He had every reason to sit on the side of the road and pout. But he went, hey, I believe God has me here for a reason right now. And he looked up and saw someone to talk to about Jesus. C.S. Lewis also said this. He said, one of the greatest things Satan can do is get us to believe that there's some life we ought to be living out there 
And all these things that keep coming our way are interruptions into the life I ought to be living. And he said, we will become incredibly dangerous for the kingdom of God whenever we accept that the interruptions that keep coming to me are actually the life God has given me to live right now and be faithful in. To be faithful in the midst of whatever opposition or difficulty comes our way. The gospel has opponents. Persecution, spiritual forces that get in the way, but what do we do? How do we, how do we live this out as a church? Let me suggest just a few action steps that I've been praying through and thinking through this week. First of all, we have to stop crying wolf. Do you, do you know the story about the little boy who cried wolf? Do you remember this one? Yeah, he, he, said, he, he, he said that there was a wolf attacking him, right? And, uh, and when everybody came, was there a wolf? No. So the villagers all went back to town. Then he did it again. He thought it was funny to see them all come running. But then... A wolf really did attack and he screamed out and no one came. We have a tendency to scream persecution every time we meet the slightest bit of opposition. Someone disagreeing with you is not persecution. Somebody arguing something differently than you believe is not persecution. And we have a danger of losing our credibility by claiming we're persecuted when we're not. Now, I'm not saying that no one in this room is being persecuted. I'm not saying that at all. I think many people have gone through really difficult things because of their faith in this room. But in general, I think this is a danger for the American church, that we can cry persecution when it's not there, and then when real persecution does come our way, our voice won't be heard. The second thing we need to do is avoid the ditches of triumphalism and escapism. Let me tell you what, what I mean by those two terms. Uh, triumphalism would be one ditch that says, we have arrived, we have built the perfect Christian society, and we have everything right here that we need. Um, I, I hear this sometimes begin to come out in prayer gatherings I come to, and, and almost every one of them is gonna open with the prayer, thank you God that we can worship in such comfort and safety. Is it wrong to thank God for comfort and safety? No, not at all. The danger is when we grow to love our comfort and safety so much that we feel like our responsibility as a church is to defend and protect our comfort and safety. That becomes the mission. Protect the sweet comfort and safety that we have here. The worst thing that could happen to us is to lose our comfort and safety. And that becomes the focus of the Christian life, is one of defense and protection. We have not arrived until Jesus returns. But another danger would be escapism. And here's what escapism says. The world is so bad, I just want to get out of here. Now, is it wrong to long for the Lord to come and make things right? No. Actually, we're supposed to pray that way. Jesus said, pray, Father, may your kingdom come. That's a very appropriate prayer to pray. What's not appropriate is to quit being faithful and just sit back and wait for Jesus to come take us home. And I think one of the reasons Paul is so amazed by the Thessalonians is they are avoiding those two ditches. And they're remaining faithful in following Jesus in their mission despite the difficulties they're coming up against. The third is to train in godliness right now. Even if you're not experiencing persecution, to still train yourself to be faithful. One of the hardest times to be faithful is when there's nothing opposing you. Comfort can be one of the most difficult times. My fear is that the American church could become like the kid who plays basketball in the driveway all day and gets awesome at draining shots from all over the driveway. And the first time they join a team and they actually have a defender try to take the ball away, they throw their hands up and say, What is that? because they did nothing to prepare actually having an opponent. You see, I think we need to market church differently. You know we market church, right? When you think about a stock photo that you put to tell people what church life is like, what's it gonna look like? Every single time, it's gonna be a group of people in a really nice house with an open floor plan, hardwood floors, granite countertops, gathered around a living room, all really attractive people, dressed nice, with their small batch gourmet coffee, sitting around talking about Jesus. They're gonna be at a picnic table in the back. They're all gonna have great comfort food and there are gonna be Christmas lights hanging over the picnic table. 
And the message is this, follow Jesus, join the church, and your life will become a Norman Rockwell painting. We sell the comfort and ease of how great the Christian life is. You will have everything you need when you follow Jesus. And that is not the image that the New Testament gives. What kind of images does Paul market for the church? The image of the soldier training for combat. The image of a farmer working a field. The image of an athlete training for a race. The idea is, come join our movement, it'll be the hardest thing you've ever done. And it'll also be the most rewarding. That's why we train in godliness right now. That's why we would willingly deny ourselves things and be generous. That's why we would choose to set, a time, set aside time to pray and seek the Lord. It matters. We're preparing for something. Next thing I would say is support persecuted Christians. My dream would be that by the end of this week, everyone in this room and everyone watching at home would choose a global worker in a nation to get behind to support in prayer, to send emails and letters to of encouragement. Because for every story like that, where there's a hard day and there's a conversion at the end, there's about a hundred hard days that they see nothing good come out of that they can measure. And those are really discouraging days. And they need someone to do what Paul did and write them a letter and say, I'm so thankful for your faithfulness. And hey, we're praying for you in Northwest Arkansas. If you want to do that, one of the staff would love to help get connected, or you can go to fellowshipnwa.org slash go and learn about the different ways we're connected with Global Outreach. Pray for the persecuted church. Support the persecuted church. And finally, become imitators. Learn to live the way the early church did. I'm gonna say this, and I know there's an election coming up and we're gonna be tempted to take this as a political statement. I am not talking politics. I'm not talking voting. I'm not talking how government should work. I'm talking about the church. It is the basic nature of humans when our rights, comforts, and freedoms are threatened to fight back. To say, we've gotta raise up our army and go defend ourselves not what Jesus gave us to do. When they came to arrest Jesus that night, Peter tried to defend their freedom. He pulled out a sword. And what did Jesus say? That's enough. Whoever lives by the sword dies by the sword. When Jesus was being interrogated by Pilate, you know what Jesus said? My kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my people would fight. So the question is, if persecution comes for us, will our rallying cry be arm yourselves to defend our freedoms? Or will our rallying cry be eyes on Jesus, grace, mercy, gentleness, and prayer for those who oppose us? Will we become imitators of the churches in Judea who are in Christ? What would motivate that? That's Paul's closing thought in verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. This is what John Stott said about this verse. He says, what Paul seems to mean is that his joy in this world and his glory in the next are tied up with the Thessalonians whom Christ through the apostles' ministry has so signally transformed. Paul took his joy, his hope, and instead of investing it in the comforts of this world, he invested it in seeing other people be made to look like Jesus. That's what enabled him to suffer. That's what enabled his faithfulness. Is he put everything he had in the hope that when I invest in people to become like Jesus, that is gonna pay dividends when Jesus returns. Or we could say it this way, we are able to suffer with grace and courage now because of our hope in the joyous return of Jesus in the future. That is our hope, that is our joy, that is our glory. And that is what we exist for. May we train and prepare now to live to that end. Lord, we love you. Lord, I, I know virtually nothing of suffering, but I have great models to follow. Lord, I pray that this church would become a church that the word of God is at work in. 
that we would become imitators of you, imitators of your church. Lord, I pray that the gospel word will keep going forth from this church and Lord, that we will enjoy the deep intimacy of walking with you and being made more like you. Make us faithful. We love you and praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.
before we leave this place this morning, let's declare that our hope is found in Christ alone. And as we face the trials of this world, we know that Christ goes before us, goes behind us, he stands beside us, he is with us. Let's sing this in faith. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, he is firm through the fiercest drought and storm. And what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving. this morning church thanks for being here today I just want to remind you that we if you need prayer this morning we have prayer available to my left and your right um, over in our prayer room uh, as you go just remember that Jesus is king he's Lord fellowship go in peace we'll see you next week